This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Ruby, and this week we're on the ancestral lands of the Bannock, Gashut, Navajo, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute peoples, now known as Utah. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. And when you hear the call, you know so well, sisters, speak Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This is the final episode of season five of the 50 Feminist States podcast. I'm Amelia Fruby, your host on the 50 Feminist States journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I am really looking forward to sharing my conversation with Kylie Akina with you today. But I've got a few things to share before we get to that discussion. As you might know, season five did not quite go as planned due to the coronavirus pandemic. I set out on the season five road trip to record these conversations and then 24 hours later turned around and went right back home in order to protect the safety of myself, the people I'm interviewing and the communities that I would be visiting along the way. I decided to record those interviews remotely and I am so glad I did because we had so many amazing conversations this season and I'm really glad that we got to share them and they didn't just get canceled along with the travel. That said, I don't think that we will do another season until travel becomes possible again. If you have tuned into the podcast for a long time, you know that one of my primary goals is to go to the homes and workplaces and communities of the people I interview, spending some time there with them. And it's not really possible to do that without traveling. So I think that season six will be indefinitely on hold until that becomes possible again. In the meantime, if you would like to support the podcast, keeping it online and making sure that it comes back in the future, you can go to glow.fm slash 50 feminist states and pledge a $5 monthly donation. And that really just helps me cover the fees that I pay to have the podcast feed and the website up year round. It is more expensive than you might think. Uh, it costs, according to my budget spreadsheet, I think it's approximately $300 a year just to keep those things online. So that $5 monthly donation from you and other 50 Feminist States supporters helps make sure that's the case uh, until we can get back out on the road with more new episodes. And of course, I imagine if it's going to be a long time, there'll be some, some surprise conversations and things that hit the podcast feed between now and then. Before we get to the conversation with Kylie today, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the state of the podcast, maybe sort of my state of the union-esque address. In the last episode, at the beginning of the episode, I really spoke to the power of the protests against police violence in the U.S. and the new racial consciousness that I saw forming among so many individuals and the shift and the exciting shift to the acceptance of police abolition as a necessary 
battle to fight in the U.S. This week, I wanted to start that process a bit within 50 Feminist States just by providing some transparency around the makeup of the podcast and the guests that we feature here. I, Amelia, the host of the podcast, am a white woman living in Chicago. Most of the time, the 50 Feminist States team is just me. I've occasionally brought on other team members in order to help with production or publicity. Most recently, that included Darby Masters, who produced all of the season five episodes. Thank you so much to her for her support of the podcast. But I can also admit that it has been a really white team as I've brought people in. And I think that it's important that I reflect on why and how that's happened and how I can work to make the work of the podcast more collaborative and coalitional and certainly less white. When I look to the makeup of the guests that we've interviewed here, over the course of our first 33 episodes, we have had 68 guests on the podcast. Of those guests, 24 have been Black, Indigenous, or people of color. That's about 35% of the guests. And 20 have been, in some way, members of the LGBTQIA plus communities. So that's almost 30% of guests. I feel confident that those numbers are growing. If you look at the representation between season one, which was a predominantly white season, and our most recent season, season five, which has had so many wonderful women of color from a variety of different backgrounds on it, I think that I at least can see the more concerted effort that I've made to really make sure that the feminism that this podcast support is not explicitly white. That said, of course, there is work to be done. 30% and 35% are not impressive numbers, but they are growing numbers. And I am here publicly committing to raising those even higher to make sure that this podcast lives up to its feminist commitments, which are on our website and in our Instagram bio, that 50 Feminist States is always intersectional and trans-inclusive. And in order to say that, that means that the voices on the podcast have to always be representative of the deep diversity of the feminist movement. So today we're going to hear from Kylie Akina in our final episode of season five in Utah. She is an illustrator and graphic designer who lives in Salt Lake City. And in this episode, we talk about her journey as an artist, her experiences as a woman living in Utah, and the status and role that she sees feminism playing in that state. This is a really amazing episode. I think that I already talked enough to intro it and give you updates about the podcast. As always, you can find me between seasons at 50 Feminist States on Instagram. You can reach out at Amelia at 50feministates.com via email. I'm a little sad that this is the final episode of season five, and I can't tell you anything about when season six will come, but I'm really happy to share this amazing conversation with Kylie with you. So for now, let's dive right in. Here's Kylie. My name is Kylie Akina, and I'm an illustrator in Salt Lake City. And I work for the University of Utah in their genetic science learning program. So I know nothing about science, but I'm learning very quickly. (laughs) Awesome. When I talk to artists and illustrators, I always love to hear a little bit of kind of just your backstory. So Could you share a little bit about like where you grow up and when you started making art and what that journey was for you? Yo, it was a journey. But (laughs) yeah, so I grew up in Logan, Utah, really small town and also a very Mormon state. And so I grew up Mormon, which was also a journey. (laughs) But anyway, I got into 
design, I guess, or in fine arts through college. I started out in psychology, like many, I'm sure. And my mother encouraged me to take a drawing class and it just kind of blossomed from there. And I emphasized in printmaking and the whole fine art and design world is just a good way to force you into being self-aware and present and making decisions on the fly and just you're kind of constantly proving things to yourself that you weren't aware you were capable of doing. And so I just fell in love with all of it. And I'm an illustrator now because it's impossible to have a massive print press in a tiny house. So <laughs> one day. Yeah. It sounds like there's so much I love hearing like wrapped up in studying art for you, not just like learning the skills of drawing or printmaking, but also kind of the process of, I want to say like thinking or feeling like an artist or learning to, it sounds like ask those sorts of questions of yourself and the world around you. What was the transition like from growing up in that small town to really kind of becoming, I guess, a fine arts major and really orienting your life around creativity? It was, well, first of all, amazing, but also very hard because <laughs> growing up in a place where you know, traditions and values are kind of everything and everything else is pretty tabooed. Being thrown into this community where they were all just like, fuck that. Like, we're here to figure out our purpose in this world. And if you don't fit there, it doesn't matter because you can fit here. That was probably the best thing that happened to me. I grew up as a person that had always done my own thing, but was very hesitant to do so growing up in this society where you know, you follow the rules. And so being a rule breaker, but not really understanding that at the time, getting into fine arts was just mind blowing. Was discovering or learning more about feminism a part of that process for you? Did that come before, during or after? How does that fit in? Absolutely. And it kind of was everything. I grew up where, you know, I was so into this religion specifically, where the most important thing to do was to have children and to raise them in this religion. And and that was it, <laughs> to be a devout member. And then during, it was just like, the whole question was like, why are you doing that when there's so much more to life and so much more to who you are and to everybody around you? And so growing up with all these traditional views of what you have to be as a woman and jumping into a world where it was like, you get to define that for yourself was rocked my world in the best way. Mm -hmm. But it also on the flip side really opened up my eyes to like, this is not okay. The way that we're being treated, you know, you grow up with these rose colored glasses thinking that like, oh, what it means to be a woman is to be a mother, to be nurturing, to encourage your husband. And that whole process of being like, that is not what it means to be a woman, not to everybody. It can certainly mean it to some, but the way feminism shaped all of that for me was really just, you can define whoever the fuck you want to be. <laughs> Which it seems like such a trivial thing, like to come to that realization. But it wasn't. It was a big moment, I think, for me and a lot of women, especially in Utah, that have grown up similarly. Yeah, I think that that's a huge thing. It's almost like in this world of 
slogans on t-shirts and national media <laughs> it seems like being like you can be your own person feels almost cliche but I think coming to that realization on a deeper level particularly like out and when that realization works against like how you've been socialized it is huge and yeah yeah and feminism definitely played a big role in that for me as well it looks like you worked with a group called bloom could you share what that was about and what you did yeah it was mostly during college and i worked with them briefly but it doesn't take away the significance of what i'd learned there so i had worked with i guess my mentor really was a woman named denise gaxetter phenomenal artist and just person overall she's just this ray of sunshine <laughs> but we worked mostly with female refugee and immigrant students and our goal was kind of to help them shape them into their own through arts or through like just these social activities that they could all meet each other and just kind of talk about like this narrative that they're used to hearing that has shaped their lives and you know like how not necessarily can you break that but how can you rewrite your own Mm-hmm. So, man, these girls were amazing. Just, I was not that cool in high school. <laughs> I was a total wiener. And, and a lot of these girls, you know, some of them pretty shy, were still just so ready to, like, take on the world and just tell us all who they were. It was amazing. So were they doing that through, like, various artistic projects? Or what were some of the things that you worked on with them? Or how did you do that work? Some of the things I had worked on with them were we did a project where we had to take a picture of ourselves and do a whole project around it where we kind of almost collaged all these things that we felt at the time mm-hmm. were making us who we are and how can we express that visually. And so just, just kind of seeing how these girls portrayed themselves through shapes and color. And like, <laughs> we even had a bunch of glitter there. It was just like, don't think, just pick up what feels right and put it on that piece. And that's you now. And at the very end, we all just kind of organically ended up having this <laughs> really funny, like runway dance party, like holding our papers and just being goofy. And it was just like, yes, good. Like, Don't be afraid to be this person right now. Like, this is great. This is who you are. It's wonderful. Whether you're sitting kind of wallflower or you're walking down this weird runway we made out of desks like go for it is yeah that's hilarious that was one thing that really stood out to me yeah that sounds really fun and really inspiring that was very fun (laughs) yeah tell me about the work that you're doing now you mentioned you work for the university so how has your kind of creative and artistic life transformed once you finish school previously before I had this job I was working at a stationary company And so designing a lot of notebooks and things like that. And so I'd gone from a place where I was used to working with my hands and a very physical medium to purely being in front of a screen (laughs) eight hours a day. So definitely a learning curve there, but also kind of reshaping, I guess, my overall style. And I mean, a lot of my work before and after and even now really focuses on mental health. And I kind of feel like my work is in a transitional stage right now, where I'm not trying to define it necessarily by a certain style, because that takes a lifetime. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A lot of people feel like you have to define that right now. But I mean, you're constantly changing. So why wouldn't your work evolve with you? Mm -hmm. So mine is kind of going through a transitional stage. But 
mostly I talk about like, you know, a lot of it has to do with mental health and being comfortable with saying how you feel, even if you don't know how you feel, how can you define that and creating places where I wish I could go mentally or things I wish I could say, whether through humor or being very serious, that's where it comes out in all my work. Because I feel like I, I'm not as eloquent as I could be. <laughs> but through visual arts, I can say everything I want to say and not have to second guess that. I love that. Can you think of maybe like an example of a piece where you felt like that really happened or for you? Yeah. So, so it's been so long since I've done a print, but uh, as far as illustration work, I did one. It was a lot of flowers. It was just, there was no really rhyme or reason to it. But during the whole process, I was just like, you know, I had a moment <laughs> with these like virtual flowers. It was like, I'm growing just as much as anything else around me is. And prior to making that illustration, I, my backyard was a massive canyon. And so I would go up there frequently and I just kind of had this moment <laughs> just sitting. It was quiet and it was just like you were constantly growing. It was one of those moments where it's kind of woo woo. Like you put your hands on the ground and you can just kind of feel connected through everything. Yeah. And I got home and I drew that and I was just like, you're always growing. You're always growing. There's no, there's no reason to be so hard on yourself for anything because you come into this world, into this life, into these new chapters, not knowing anything. So you just have to accept that you don't know anything and you're going to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's such a beautiful story. And I think also such a good lesson to hold with us right now during this period where yeah. everything is different for so many of us and there are a lot of big feelings and big changes in the world and just kind of being able to sit in that like space of not knowing anything <laughs> and like yeah. something I write about in some of my work is how one of the things about growth is that it's like we're doing it as much as it's happening to us and so circumstances grow you mm -hmm. as much as you grow in them and I'm always trying to kind of surrender to that in my own work and just kind of sit with sit with it instead of trying to make sense of it or force it because it can be so, so challenging. And I love that image of you sitting in nature and taking in that lesson from the natural world. That's really empowering. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people like us, you know, who are doing creative things, whether it's artistic or not, you, can, mm -hmm. you know, creativity has an indefinite amount of definitions for people. You don't like to be too comfortable in things, you know. I feel like a lot of creatives feel that. And so it's that whole concept of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> it's just especially now, this whole freaking pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> it's shaken up people yeah. in a lot of ways that you know they didn't expect. So it's not necessarily a time to be like super productive. It's not a competition. It's just yeah. like you've been given this challenge. You have to take it for what it's worth. You got to adapt. And however quickly that is for you, you're going to do it. You'll get there. Yeah, I love that. I wanted to ask you, if you're comfortable talking about this, about kind of two pieces that I saw on your Instagram that I think were really powerful. I mean, I think many, many of them were really powerful, but two that stood out to me were both about race. And one says, you don't need to know where I'm from. And the other is the word exotic. 
And they seem to be kind of close together in time. Actually, maybe you posted them yeah. <laughs> a couple of days apart. So in my mind, they kind of go together. I don't know if it feels that way for you, but I was wondering if you can kind of speak to the story behind those pieces and, and what they might mean to you. Sure. I grew up in Utah where brown people are very sparse. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's not easy being surrounded by white people and them trying to understand where you're coming from, which you know, has nothing against them personally. It's just like, you, you're not going to understand, you know, uh, you can try your best. And I appreciate that, but it's something that <laughs> you'll never understand the way I understand it. Yeah. So with that first one that you don't need to know where I'm from, it was really just about this idea and problem <laughs> of people. They look at your skin color before they look at you as a person. Mm. And the problem with that is, you know, they're all judgments, which people have to make their normal, but to go up to somebody and point those out and other them immediately, whether your intentions are good or not, it's just like, okay, I'm really sick of this. Yeah. And when I meet people, normally the first question I get is like, so where are you from? California. No, where are you from? And I'm like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I know what you're asking. <laughs> And especially growing up here, like when I used to date, it was just the only, the only thing that was labeling me as a person was the way I looked and like how cool my culture was or all of these things or, and being mixed race, especially like a lot of mixed race people experience this where you're not too much of this, not enough of this, all these things. But so in a way, when people would ask me, like, where are you from? It was completely dismissive to any bad negative experience I had because the whole point was like, it's so cool that you're brown. <laughs> like, yeah. like, no, you, you don't need to know where I'm from. Like, you can know my name. We can talk about similarities, things we like, but you don't need to know where I'm from. It got to a point where I was just like, it is wild. You would never guess. I'm 100% Irish, homie. Like, <laughs> just like, stop it. <laughs> Your preconceived ideas of who I am do not measure up to. Like, don't limit the experiences I've had because of what you think my life has been like. Sorry, I hope I answered that okay. Oh, no, that, of course. So many thoughts around it. I really appreciate you sharing. Some of the things you said were reminding me of um, when I was in North Dakota, I interviewed Ms. North Dakota, who was an African-American woman named mm -hmm. Wiljar Ojuro. And we talked about this, that like when she would go to pageants, no one ever expected Miss North Dakota to be black and people were right. so surprised. And she talked a lot about that question. Like, where are you from? Even when she's wearing a sash that says Miss North Dakota, like people still have to <laughs> ask her that over and over. So much of what you said reminded me of that conversation we had on the podcast. And do you feel similarly then I'm kind of taking from your art piece about the word exotic or does that piece come from a similar feeling? Is what I'm asking. Yeah, it comes from a similar feeling and <laughs> to rag on my in-laws or anything. They're great. <laughs> and I've talked to my husband about this as well as his mom. They're wonderful in hearing what needs to be said and not really taking it personally. They're mm -hmm. wonderful that way. But it would drive me nuts because, I mean, the word exotic puts you on display as this otherworldly being almost. And it's like, I'm not an animal in a zoo. I'm not here existing for your entertainment, for you to gawk and awe at me. Like, don't come up to me and start 
touching my hair saying, oh, it's so thick. I wish I could have this. Everybody come look like, first of all, don't touch me. That's weird. (laughs) Second of all, don't like ask for a gathering to put my looks on display. Like it's uncomfortable. I don't like that. And my brother-in-law at the time, he's black and we would have this exchange all the time. (laughs) Just this look because they would go and touch his hair and it was just inappropriate. We would just like, we got to (laughs) go. This is where we take the walk. (laughs) Yeah. And so it would just drive me nuts. And that whole exotic piece was, I think, after like a family dinner, where I was just like, I don't like this. I'm not exotic. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you can call me pretty. You can call me all the compliments, but exotic is not one of them. <laughs> yeah, I really loved what you wrote there, which I'm sure you know, but I'll just read it so listeners can hear it too, <laughs> which says, it might feel like a compliment for you, but it's really not. The word exotic works for birds, fruits, plants, flowers, the like, but not humans. It's a weird term that fetishizes my skin or my features. It surfaces the fact that people like me don't fit Western beauty standards and it alienates us. Representation efforts are progressing slowly. Is this something you do? No worries. I got you. Don't call me exotic. Call me what I am. Dope as hell. (laughs) Which I love. (laughs) Exactly. Like, I'm not going to stop you from complimenting me, please, by all means, bring it on. But (laughs) just like, just (laughs) check what you're saying. Yeah. One of the things I really appreciate about your illustration and your online presence with it is the tone of confidence. And I love what you just said, like, give me the compliment, (laughs) but not in the form of a microaggression. Like, no thanks for that. Exactly. (laughs) That ain't it, sis. We're not doing microaggressions. (laughs) I love it. I think some of the other ones that really resonated with me were some of your pieces around around diet culture, particularly the one that says diet talk makes me hungry, (laughs) which I enjoyed quite (sighs) a lot. Oh, I mean, growing up as a woman of color, I was one of those little girls that was just like, all my white friends get all this attention from boys or whatever, or they're being complimented on their hair, their eyes. And I see myself in the mirror and I'm not that, (laughs) that and like, I'm Polynesian. We're pretty thick girls. We're big women. (laughs) Like I would be on the brink of dying if I were like 115 pounds and all these things. And it's just, when you grow up as a woman of color, you're not made to fit the mold systemically, politically, in any way, your things are not made for you. So you have to make your presence known. And I would talk to some of my aunties and a lot of them would have this attitude of just like, you have to fit in or you're going to this or you're going to that. And it just got to a point where it was like, I literally cannot do that physically, (laughs) mentally, in any way. I can't do that. So they're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah, this is who I am. And here's the door if you don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then you get to say that in your artistic work, which I think is really great. It translates into this other medium too, whether it be in your prints or illustrations online, which is wonderful. So I feel like we've talked about a number of things, you know, I really wanted to talk about your design work, kind of the role feminism has played and our creativity has played in your life. We talked a little bit about what you're working on right now. Are there other things that, that you wanted to say or get into around kind of feminism? Maybe I'd love to hear your sense of what is feminism in Utah specifically and where do you see it there? In Utah specifically, I would probably say that feminism and helping their children define who they are, which is it's great. But I guess 
actually, it's almost like people are afraid of the term feminist, you know, mm-hmm. like angry feminism, feminazi, whatever. It's just, do you believe in equality? That's it. <laughs> like, congrats, you made it. You're a feminist. But I guess <laughs> feminism for me in Utah is not limiting it to just that. It is, I mean, feminism for what it is at its core is, you know, equality, it's intersectionality as well. It's a little hard being (laughs) a woman of color and trying to make your place in a community where it's purely white feminists. Mm -hmm. And you also have to say, no, we exist too. Mm -hmm. And if you want people to speak up for you, you also need to be willing to speak up for everybody else. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That includes people with disabilities, that includes people of color, that includes men, you know, it includes men. Because I mean, it's irritating to see women talking about raising children to be feminists, but also still turning around and telling their boys, you know, don't cry. Or like, come on, be tough, be all these things like men are allowed to be emotional as well. That's also included in, in the narrative. And so for me, feminism, especially in Utah is making sure it's not limited to this one thing. It's also being brave enough to say, no, check your privilege. (laughs) Privilege tends to be a very triggering word (laughs) to a lot of people. Everybody in some way or another is privileged. Some people just have more things stacked up against them. So you need to be willing to check that. Terry, did that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I think so. And yeah, I've done a little bit of reading around Mormon feminism and kind of how that shapes feminism in Utah. And my intuition was maybe that that's kind of a little bit of what you might be speaking to with like feminism being located in the family, which I think is important, but I really take your point that like, that's not everything. Absolutely. I mean, I am not part of that faith anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it's in Utah, it seems to be a one-sided definition of feminism. And if you don't fit that mold, then Nobody's ever going to say it, but the vibe you get from society is like, well, if you don't fit in here, you won't fit in anywhere. And so when, you know, your whole state is predominantly LDS or Mormon and you're not, (laughs) you have to be willing to like take a risk to say that's absolutely not true. Yeah. (laughs) like I get what you're saying and I get what you're doing, but also add this to your equation. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're there saying these things and I appreciate the bravery (laughs) that that takes. And I'm really happy to share you saying all of this to a much wider audience. I feel like from an outsider perspective, not having grown up in Utah, like one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is get people to see that there are feminists in all of these areas. There are women of color talking about feminism and gender and equality in every single state. And we have to have that sort of intersectional approach everywhere we go. So I'm just really honored to hear your voice and what you have to say about this. I think it's really great for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Of course, you're welcome. I'm glad that you were here. Um, I was just wondering where your handle Friendly Kid Print came from and what that meant to you. (laughs) That's such a funny, stupid story. So I'm about to expose it all. No, but so (laughs) some friends and family, we had this group chat. (laughs) It's so dumb. It is so dumb. Oh my God. We had this... Facebook group chat called Cousins Who Sin. (laughs) And it was basically all of us who 
were not Mormon or don't identify as that. And we would all have parties together. We'd all drink together, whatever. And so <laughs> we were all like giggling in this group chat and we're all in the car together. And my mother-in-law turns around and sees it on my brother-in-law's phone. <laughs> she goes, what is that? That is not acceptable. And he goes, oh shit. <laughs> So he changed it to friendly kids. <laughs> so anytime anybody would see this stupid chat, like friendly kids, whatever. I just thought it was so hilarious. <laughs> Somehow this stupid story resonated with me so hard. I was like, yo, that's going to be who I am now. <laughs> just a friendly kid. <laughs> I, I love that. I like the, the many meanings there. That's really fun. Thank you for sharing that story. I appreciate it. <laughs> for hearing it. It's so dumb. <laughs> All right. I think those are all my questions. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention or talk about today? I don't think so. Honestly, I was just thrilled to get to talk about everything. And I think I would like to revisit real quick, though, just how like feminism had shaped my work. Yeah. In college, I wasn't as confident about saying what I wanted to say. I was in this transition of like leaving my religion behind me and all these things. And so at the time, my work revolved around like negative space, almost in a poetic sense. To illustrate that in music, when the music cuts out, it makes everything else like so much more powerful when it comes back in. And so visually, I wanted to talk about, okay, well, how can I be quieter and say something just as prominent as people around me yelling? And at the time, that really rang true to who I was. But then just kind of breaking out of this mold and coming into myself, I was like, no, I am loud. And I love being a part of this, like <laughs> people who are doing things so unapologetically, like that's what I want too. So visually I still will try and revisit the whole negative space concept, but I mean, just who I am, <laughs> this kind of attitude cannot be said quietly. So <laughs> <laughs> I just had to own up being like, yeah, I'm a loud angry woman sometimes and that's just it yeah uh, I think that is a better way to illustrate that question that you had earlier I think that's great that's the perfect quote to end on I'm just a loud angry <laughs> woman sometimes and that's it <laughs> I think that's perfect cool Amelia it was so nice talking to you this was so fun and yeah. <laughs> thank you so much I loved it a lot and I'm super excited to share it so I can't wait this episode of 50 Feminist Dates. You can find show notes at 50feministdates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministdates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.